Hi, thanks for tuning in to War News Radio. A quick note about our current programming. Late last year, the War News Radio team started planning a transition to a new, season-based format. The idea was to dedicate several episodes to every crisis that we covered, diving deeper into the issues and bringing you a wider range of valuable voices. Unfortunately, the circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic have forced us to downsize our first season, which we are now presenting as a two-part story beginning with this episode. That said, we are as proud as ever of our work, and we look forward to developing our format further in the future. We hope you're as excited as we are. Thank you once again. Now, on to the episode. From Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is... This is... This is... This is War News Radio. Hello, and welcome to War News Radio. I'm Ross Layton. The United States drastically downsized its commitments in Syria's civil war last October, when President Donald Trump announced that he would pull American military personnel out of the country. The exact logistics were complex, but for the Syrian Kurdish populace of northeast Syria, the troop removal represented a huge blow. Soon after American troops withdrew from their positions in the region, where they had been assisting Kurdish-led militias associated with the Democratic Union Party, or PYD, neighboring Turkey established a so-called safe zone in the area. While the zone built upon an existing buffer region along the border, the Turkish incursion led to clashes with PYD forces, whom Turkey's government considers terrorists, as well as mass displacement and alleged war crimes against civilians. Turkey's hostility toward Kurds both beyond and within its borders, however, is nothing new. Since the founding of the Turkish Republic in 1923, the, um, the new ideological basis, social glue, if you will, of, of the new Turkish Republic was to be Turkish nationalism. This is Professor David Romano, the Thomas G. Strong Chair in Middle East Politics at Missouri State University. The main minority being Kurds were, were denied and repressed, and Kurdish names for cities and so forth were erased and replaced with Turkish names. So uh, places like Dersim became Tinjeli, and places like uh, Ahmed became Diyarbakir, and, and so forth. And uh, from, from that point on, in the point, in, from the point of view of uh, Turkish policymakers, the Kurds were the main threat to the new state. It's just natural, I think, to value your mother tongue and, and, and culture, and when that's repressed and denied, uh, it, it's just a matter of time before a Kurdish uh, unrest and um, alienation from the new state becomes a problem. And, and it's been a problem, and it's been the main problem for Turkey ever since. So even Kurds in Iraq or Syria or Iran, because the Kurds related to Kurds in Turkey, when they make political gains, uh, Turkey doesn't like it. The PKK comes out of the Turkish left movement of the 1960s and 70s, actually. Abdullah uh, Erjan, the founder, uh, was active in, in the uh, far left uh, of Turkish politics, uh, starting with his student days at the University of Ankara in the early 1970s. And uh, he split off when he found the, that the Turkish left was kind of a chauvinist towards Kurdish issues in his view as, uh, you know, the Turkish state. And he broke off and founded his own revolutionary party, which was the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and went back to eastern Turkey, or what the Kurds call northern Kurdistan, and, and uh, began a Maoist-style insurgency there. 
And, uh, and so the PKK emerges as a Marxist-Leninist group uh, and Maoist, uh, combine all the terms, <laughs> uh, which uh, poses a real challenge to the Turkish state. The U.S. has historically enjoyed a strong relationship with Turkey, and Turkey's stance toward the PKK, which it deems, as it does the PYD, a terrorist organization, has influenced U.S. policy. The United States uh, added uh, the PKK to uh, its list of terrorist groups uh, at the end of the 1990s uh, by Turkish request. They, the United States didn't really have a, a grudge with the PKK because the PKK has never targeted Americans or American interests. But uh, Turkey, as an ally, was able to request from the United States, as well as Canada and the EU and other countries, to add the PKK to the list. That was all fine and well. It didn't really matter that much uh, to uh, the Western states involved until the uh, Syrian civil war broke out in 2011. And at that point, the U.S. tried to back all kinds of different uh, Syrian opposition groups, especially once uh, al-Qaeda in Syria and ISIS emerged on the scene. None of those groups panned out. It didn't work. Uh, the U.S. backing of the different groups uh, was a uh, a fiasco, a $500 million training program in Turkey for uh, Syrian and Arab opposition groups ended up with them going into Syria, getting ambushed by ISIS and Al-Qaeda in, in Syria, and turning over their weapons, in some cases defecting to the groups. And so the very last uh, choice that the Americans had was the PYD. And when the ISIS um, laid siege to the Syrian Kurdish town of Kobani, the PYD fought valiantly and held them off. And that's when President Obama made the decision to uh, airdrop some supplies and weapons to them to help them continue to hold off against ISIS. And, and that's when the United States uh, began its uh, cooperation with the PYD, with the Syrian Kurdish uh, forces, uh, and it proved uh, an unparalleled success. Given the collaboration's success in combating ISIS, and the strong U.S.-Kurdish relationship, Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria, clearing the way for the Turkish safe zone, was a startling development. The so-called safe zone, Turkey was never interested in intervening when ISIS controlled that entire border on that entire Syrian-Turkish border. That was fine. Uh, ISIS was besieging Kobani at a time when Turkey had a ceasefire with the PKK and peace negotiations with them. And then suddenly, when ISIS is cleansed out of the area and it's Syrian Kurds of the PYD running the show there and controlling that area south of the Turkish border, then suddenly it's all about uh, a security risk and a, a terrorist threat for Turkey, and Turkey has to go in and intervene. Uh, when in fact, there were no attacks, no significant attacks at all from Syrian Kurdistan in across the border into Turkey. This was uh, kind of just a, uh, a justification for the Turkish state because it wanted to prevent Kurdish political gains in Syria and especially prevent uh, Kurdish autonomy uh, to emerge or, or federalism to emerge in Syria. So, so Turkey goes in to, uh, to wipe the P uh, PYD out of the area and, and to ethnically cleanse it, to uh, get the Kurds out and bring in 
Syrian uh, Arab refugees that are in Turkey and causing political headaches for the Turkish government. You get them to relocate to the area and and take up uh, residence in the houses of the Kurds that have just fled the Turkish advance. Uh, I think that's problematic uh, if one has any regard whatsoever for for human rights laws and and so forth. Like I mean, it's okay to send refugees of Syria back to where they came from in Syria, but uh, to to change the ethnic demographic structure of Syria by taking Arab Syrian refugees from like Aleppo and sending them to uh, around Kamishli and Kobani and Ras Al Ain and, and and other Kurdish parts of northern Syria is, is ethnic cleansing. This brings us to the human impact of these recent events, which some of the people we spoke to know all too well about. My name is Doman Abouqadr. I'm, I'm a Kurd from Iraqi Kurdistan, from the city of Kirkuk. Um, and Kirkuk is actually currently occupied by Shiite militias backed by the Iranian government. I was born in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, my family and I fled during the first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein, the Baptist dictator, decided to uh, invade and attack the Kurds in the north. Um, we then fled to a uh, neighboring country, Syria, after a trek through Iran. And when we were denied there, we ended up in Syria at a refugee camp, a United Nations refugee camp. And we stayed there for seven years. And the refugee camp, uh, which is still operational today, it's called a whole. And then we ended up coming to the United States in 98. Um, I did my bachelor's at the University of Washington. And also my master's in international peace and conflict resolution at the American University in Washington, D.C. Abdul Qadr's firsthand experience as a diaspora Kurd reflects the grim reality of what Romano spoke to us about state efforts toward ethnic cleansing and cultural erasure. I mean, the central government simply don't want to give Kurds rights, right, you know, their basic human rights. And that is, you know, allowing them to speak their own language, that's allowing them to have a proper education, that's allowing, that's um, economically developing their parts of the country. Um, you know, and then the Kurds are like, what are we to do? We're held hostage by the central government. We're not allowed to speak our mother tongue. We don't have the basic rights. We're considered third-class citizens. We're not even citizens. There's Kurds of Turkey who, who can't sing, can't dance, can't do anything in, with, with their culture or their own language. That last voice is Najir Zabari. I'm a political refugee from Kurdistan. I was born in a refugee camp in Iran, and we moved to the United States in 1977 when I was about a year and a half old. Zubari has been busy since the American withdrawal, campaigning for Kurds fleeing Turkish advances in Syria. I decided to start a clothing drive just to see, you know, if we could get some items to send back home, winter clothes, and it got, it blew up. And we started getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of pounds of items. We did an Amazon wish list and I was getting 50, 60 packages a day from from all over the world. We ended up collecting, I think it was 29 pallets and it was 27,800 pounds of items that we sent back, back home. With the clothing drive, Zabari is trying to provide sustained support to displaced Kurds, even after the headlines have faded. In Idlib, it's a city in, uh, in Syria right now. 
It's a Kurdish city. It's the worst humanitarian crisis probably of the 21st century. There's 900,000 displaced people. They rush to the border to go to Turkey. Turkey shuts the border down. They have nowhere to go, and it's snowing. It's, I mean, it's it's just a horrific situation, and they aren't getting any any help. The UN is over overwhelmed. None of the uh, refugee aid agencies can can handle that kind of uh, or that 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 amount of people. And I mean, nothing. There hasn't been a peep on TV about it. I mean, everybody's just gone on to the next news cycle story, and you know, they're, they they've been forgotten about. Given all the pain that the U.S. troop removal has brought to the Kurds of northeast Syria, we're left wondering why. Zabari, Abdulkader, and Romano all spoke to us about the difficult histories and conditions that connect the Kurdish people, the U.S., and the countries where Kurdistan is located. I love this country. I just wish that, uh, you know, they would just, this is not the first time the Kurds have been betrayed by the American government, not the people. It had nothing to do with the people. Just uh, this government uses us to their benefit. The United States has to handle the Kurds separately and not as a whole, um, which makes sense according to U.S. national security interests. Largely because, you know, you can't say statehood for the Kurds in Turkey when Turkey is a NATO ally. Um, But as far as the Kurds in Iraq, for example, um, they've had a historical relationship. It is the um, most peaceful region in the entirety of Iraq. Um, It was because of the United States that there's autonomy um, since after the first Gulf War in 1992 that was implemented. Um, And it was the United States that aided the Kurds as far as... uh, giving them aid. You know, people forget that in 2003, when uh, the United States and some of our allies overthrew the Saddam regime, and uh, the, uh, the Turkey threatened to, uh, to send its troops in, not, not to help the United States against Saddam, they refused to do that, but in order to prevent the Kurds from gaining autonomy or gaining control of Kirkuk or, or Mosul, and, and um, stopping uh, any Kurdish political advances. American-Turkish differences with respect to the Kurds also manifest in the country's characterizations of Kurdish identity and political diversity, topics we'll address in greater depth next time. For now, consider the example of the PYD and the PKK, the Kurdish organizations we mentioned earlier. The United States have tried to uh, draw a, a kind of uh, dividing line saying uh, the PYD is not the PKK, but in fact, they're, they're ideological kin. A lot of PYD fighters are ex-PKK fighters, and in some sense, the, the Turks have a point that uh, there, there is a... Well, the Turks say there's no daylight between the PYD and the PKK. That, that's probably not true, but they have a point in terms of uh, how related these groups are. Thank you for joining us as we explore the Kurdish people's place in the Syrian conflict and beyond. Tune in next time as we continue to unpack the diversity of Kurdish politics, ideology, and identity. The issue here is, can can Kurds in Syria have a kind of um, affection or attachment to the new uh, post-Marxist-Leninist anarchist ideology of the PKK? Uh, without uh, being part of the organization in, in practice, 
uh, are they allowed to do that and not get bombed by Turkey? We'll also dig deeper into how different Kurdish groups represent divergent visions of Kurdish statehood. You know, I wish we could just unite. However, this is the biggest obstacle to Kurdish um, statehood and self-determination. It's us ourselves, it's, you know, we're preventing ourselves from gaining that statehood on top of the external factors. Um, I think that the Kurds have to move on from this sense of tribalism, if you will, it's a spider web of divisions, and I think the ultimate reason for that is nobody wants to give up power. War News Radio is a production of Swarthmore College. This episode was reported by the War News Radio team written by Lucas Meyer-Lee and Sophia Peterson, and produced by me, Ross Layton. For more from War News Radio, find us on Facebook or Twitter, or visit our website at warnewsradio.org. Thanks for listening.